0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. This is the last episode of our series on props, and rather than talk about a specific movie, we're visiting Independent Studio Services, also known as ISS, a prop house headquartered in Sunderland, California, North Hollywood adjacent. Hosting us today is Greg Bilson, Jr., CEO of ISS. Greg, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today is Scott Buckwald, property master extraordinaire and regular guest of the show. Scott, glad to have you back. Glad to be back. Today we're recording on site after having done a tour of the prop house. And there's all kinds of questions that brought up that I wanna share with our listeners. But first, let's set some context. ISS is by every measure the largest prop house in the world. Greg, tell us a little more about your company. Well,
1: uh, it didn't start off that way. It started in my dad's garage in Culver City with just a few props and it has now grown into uh, one of the largest. I'd rather focus on the best. Uh, If you do a good job, the size takes care of itself. Uh, But we are now in 11 states in the US as well as the UK. Um, And we supply props to commercials, TV, feature films of every possible size and budget. And about how many full-time employees do you have with this company? That fluctuates, but full-time we have about 180 people with the different
0: companies. And I read online that you have more than a million and a half props. I mean, to give some sort of sense of scale, we've just been through a full warehouse, but this isn't all of your props. How do you, how do you give someone a sense of that scale, just how many props we're talking about?
1: We give somebody a tour like you just had. <laughs> uh, I would say that we are in the millions, not 1.5 million. People like to hang their hat on a number, um, but you saw how many props are on just one military vest. In addition to this facility, which is 125,000 square feet of stuff, we have seven acres in Lancaster, we have buildings in 11 other states, and it's growing every single
0: day, it gets bigger. Now, I also know that what we know as ISS is actually three companies. Could you talk to me a little more about how that's broken down?
1: Yeah, ISS is Independent Studio Services. We primarily rent props uh, to TV shows, feature films. Studio Art and Technology is a manufacturing entity which makes those props and ultimately sells those to production. At times they will sell it to ISS and will in turn rent those props to production. Studio Graphics is a manufacturing uh, of graphic props, everything from newspapers to IDs, to stickers,
0: to uh, uh, license plates for cars. And so tell me a little bit more about the growth from a small company that your father started to where you are today?
1: Well, as we all know, the film industry and the television industry has grown up quite a bit over the last 40 years. ISS has been around 43 years, so we've naturally experienced some growth. We supplied a product that people obviously liked that went with a certain level of service, but they also appreciated. So it just kind of took off. My dad started the companies because one of our then-competitors didn't supply the level of service that he felt a property master should have. So as a property master, he thought he would grow uh, his own company uh, with some contemporaries and friends pulling together their own stuff and started a place called The Gold Room originally back in 1977. And this was a group of prop masters that had stuff in their garage, stuff that their wife had gotten rid of, stuff that they just were storing. And they pulled it all together in one place and they started renting from each other. Um, and that was the genesis. That's how it started. It grew obviously now into a uh, multinational large company that's semi-legitimate in the uh, corporate world. We do things much differently than we did 40 years ago. Well,
0: we'll come back to some of those specific areas where there's been particular growth, but let's talk next about the relationship between what you do here, Greg, at the prop house and Scott weigh in when a prop master has a need for props or Wardrobe or such, or how the entire film set interacts with ISS?
1: The one thing that's slightly different with our company is that it's not run by accountants or bean counters, as I like to call them, Uh, meaning nothing negative against my bean counter friends. But my father, who started the companies, was a property master. I myself was a property master. Uh, My son was a property master. So when we work with clients like Scott and other property masters, we're speaking the same language, we've been on the film set, we've done the same job, even though each one of us does it slightly differently. There's a camaraderie and a knowledge that I have that's fairly unique.
2: And I I even take it further, I think I've even told you, I've always considered this my home office. I always felt very at home here, and there's plenty of prop houses in the city, but I've never felt at home those other places. I mean, there are times I've had to go there and there's always room for plenty of businesses, but this has always been my home business. This is the place where everybody knows who I am. The salesperson that I work with is a member of my prop department, even though I don't pay him and he's not on my payroll per se, I count on him as if he is a member of my crew. And every job I I work on, I make sure that I use the same person.
1: If ISS was a bar, we would be cheers.
2: But it's what, what's, what's important about people knowing who I am, everybody knows my particular approach to things, my style, what, what I like. I don't feel like I need to reinvent the wheel every time I come in here. There's a certain constant in what I do in every job I take. And then it kind of goes around to the other side of the circle because that, it's filled in by the people I work with here from weapons to, to graphics, to manufacturing, to prop rental.
0: So a prop master has worked with the script, has broken down what they need for a specific scene, then what, Scott, will you bring to ISS
2: and and what happens after that? Could be a lot of things. There's There's no routine. And every prop master has their own way of doing things. I'm sure there are some prop masters who come here with their breakdown and hand it to their salesperson and then just pick up a box. I tend to go over with my salesperson what I want, what I'd like. Then I sit down with, manufacturing my representative in manufacturing and we'll build that together I'll see what his designs are and I'll add my contribution to it a lot of times I'll come and sit with Greg for a while and we just talk about the project and just come up with ideas whether it's just recommending tech advisors or different people in in this compound who might be able to add ingredients to to my overall my overall project
1: In the prop world, as well as TV feature films, it's a wonderful collaboration. And each one of those collaborations is different based on uh, time constraints, budgetary issues, actors that are particularly persnickety or have food allergies or just a giant pain in the ass. Uh, It's always different. Um, And that's part of what makes it interesting is that it's the same job, the same studio, maybe even the Same show each week, but every day is so incredibly different because of these things.
0: I want to dive a little deeper on the rental aspects. I'm not quite sure how to communicate via the podcast to folks that just walking around the building and seeing all the various rooms with camera equipment or sports equipment or musical instruments, just the vastness of what's available to rent. Tell me more to give folks a sense of of just the scope of what we're talking about here.
1: It it starts off as basic as somebody needs something, I have it, I want to rent it to you, I'm going to make it make more sense for you to rent it than to buy it. If you need it for six months and some people think that, well, I should just buy it because I'm going to need it for so long, I'm going to make it make more sense for you to rent than to own. If it's a brand new Apple X 3000 watch that is the newest, latest and greatest. I will go buy that and I'll rent it for a week
0: and I'll keep it forever. And so again, when we're talking about 40 years, I imagine this has grown over time as far as collecting and adding things to the uh, items that are available.
1: Yes. And the funny thing about the length of 40 years, 40 years ago when we were acquiring things, we acquired things at a garage sale or a swap meet now with one click of a mouse button i'm on ebay and i'm shopping the world over and those items i picked up for pennies on the dollar at the garage sale now sometimes are very collectible and are actual antiques and we have to completely change the evaluation i may have purchased something 40 years ago that was 20 dollars. that's now worth two thousand dollars and the show may want to use it and break it over somebody's head so you have to take all these things into consideration when you're renting a prop out. You can't become a pers- personally or emotionally attached to anything. <laughs> it's ultimately going to get used, used
0: harshly, and possibly even destroyed. Sounds like every rental agreement has to be tailored to the specific situation that you're, is being involved in the, the prop. Yeah, it's,
1: it's entirely possible you send 100 of something out and it's a war film. And 20 of those people in that war film get horribly uh, damaged. They're killed and there's effects and there's squibs and that just happens. You have to take that into consideration. Um, Like I said, you can't become so attached to something. You can't send something out and put it into somebody else's hands and expect it to come back in the same condition. It's going to get used.
2: With that said, my biggest nightmare, and it's happened several times over the years, I have producers and directors that want to put something of their own into the movie because they want, to, they want to see it become famous or they just, it's its a way of collecting. And and a lot of times it's something personal to them. Uh, when I did Mad Men, the producer of that wanted to put in his mother's some uh, glass bowl from a wedding gift. And, I, and nothing happened to it, but I told him, I said, it's a bad idea. I said, you should never put anything in that money can't replace. I mean, here... If something gets paint on it or gets broken or gets lost or gets stolen, we just put it loss and damage and we pay for it. I would never want to have something that became emotional. And it's something we really have to watch out for. And it's a big mistake. I would never put anything from my own home into it that if it got lost or stolen, that money just couldn't replace.
0: But Greg, I imagine that over time and with so many stories and specific props, there must be props here in the house that it's hard to give up that emotional connection to what you've seen them do or where you got them originally or the movies that they were in. There must be, I don't know, some of it must tug on you when it goes out the door.
1: Well, like when I rented my uh, new golf irons two weeks ago to 911 and they went over and they kept them for an extra week and I wasn't able to use those golf clubs for the golf tournament that weekend.
2: (laughs) Uh, uh, That actually (laughs) happened
1: just a few weeks ago. So yeah, so I'm not going to rent my own golf clubs anymore because I want to make sure that uh, I have those in my uh, arsenal and not somebody else's. My wife probably has blenders and things that I've taken that are still here. I see toys that I had when I was a kid, but I'm probably not normal. All this stuff is just at the end of the day stuff to me. And the way I look at it, like George Carlin, I'll just get more stuff.
0: Well, we've talked about specific stuff as far as the props you go, but, but as we mentioned earlier, you also have a manufacturing company that makes props. Tell us more about that and what they do.
1: Well, that's pretty fun. That's one of the more creative aspects of the companies. A multitude of different artisans at Studio Art and Technology will work with designers to come up with props and otherworldly items that exist in a complete make-believe world and they bring them to life. The Marvel programs, Thor, Captain America's shield, spaceships, crazy things that until just a few days before we made it didn't exist except for in somebody's imagination. Um, And then to be able to build that, make that, see that on screen, um, it's pretty fun. I don't go to the movies or watch a TV show the same as most people.
0: You mentioned uh, some of the Marvel props and we did another podcast speaking with the with the prop department from the Marvel movies. Tell us more about the role ISS played in some of these iconic prop items.
1: Well, we've worked with a lot of Marvel projects and uh, Captain America's shield, Thor's hammer, constantly refining, trying to make them better, uh, trying to make them work for the actor better in a specific scene. Uh, maybe some of the earlier technology was too heavy so, we created another technique to make it lighter, so the actor was happier. he was able to look more dangerous, more butch, more you know more violent, all the things that you want to see in a comic book type movie. But it's constantly changing and evolving, and they uh, a lot of people thought that everything that we do would replace by uh, computer generated images and technology. We found the exact opposite to be taking place is that we're able to make things so real, so authentic, so lightweight that actors, real actors on real film sets with real crew are able to do these unbelievably complicated stunt sequences, almost like a ballet. And ultimately at the end of the day, the product is better than it just being created completely in a computer room. So it's fun bouncing back and forth between seeing some of our props that we physically make and then the guys in the computer room take it to another level, but we bounce back and forth. So that technology hasn't replaced the need for computer generated images and computer generated images haven't replaced the need for us making physical props.
0: And so really there's a collaboration there you see in the future that folks having that interaction, not just with specific props, but with um, uh, to scale items that would fall under props, even though it's representing what's eventually going to be some sort of. Um, visual effect, but it's really important that those things actually exist for the set. And that's where your your company comes in.
1: Yeah. There are times we're working with the director who has the vision, the stunt coordinator who wants to do something that had never been done before. We of course want to make sure it's done safely as does the actor and actresses on these projects. So it's a really fun collaboration. Um, Most of the time we're able to succeed, but there are times where things are being asked to be done that are just too dangerous, too
0: expensive, too complicated, and we come up with another way of doing it. I was impressed with the scale of equipment, just the number of 3D printers and cutting machines and just the paint machine, just all of the space and equipment that it takes to create these props from scratch. How has that grown over the years?
1: Well, the shop started in a garage with a jigsaw and a couple pieces of steel and duct tape, like MacGyver 101 the manufacturing has changed quite a bit. It used to be you know, a jigsaw, double stick tape, whatever, bubble gum, we'd put it all together. Now the technology is things are designed on computers, they're output to computer controlled devices, there's 3D printers, there's 20 different types of technology of 3D printers, different definitions, different resolutions, different uh, ways of doing it. So it's understanding the technologies, trying to come up with the best ways of coming up with the best prop, most cost-effective, the quickest, how can you do a 1,000 of these in a week? We're constantly asked to do things that the answer should be no, but we're not in the no business. We're in the yes business, and we have to figure out a
0: way to say yes. Tell me more about how some of that um, yes business has led to innovations in some of your props. I'm specifically thinking of when we talked about Uh, cameras and having rubber cameras that flash without noise, for example. How do those things come about? Um, And are there other stories you would share about sort of how that collaborative relationship has led to new innovations in the space?
1: What's part of that collaboration and evolution when you read a script and you see that uh, Godzilla is attacking a press conference and there's a 100 people that are running for the lives and they all had very expensive cameras? Now you have to think, all right, well, if these 100 expensive cameras get damaged, that's going to be a very expensive scene, and it could be potentially dangerous. So let's make some rubber cameras that will be safer and cheaper if and when they are damaged. And then the next person thinks, well, wouldn't it be great if that rubber camera could actually also trigger a flash? And then wouldn't it be great if they look good enough close up to where in that press conference when the motor drives are ruining The sound recording of the actor's dialogue, if that didn't exist, wouldn't that be neat? And we start playing with it, and then we eventually come up with a prop that works for the stunts. It works for a more cost-effective rental because it's not as expensive as a digital camera. And it works better with the sound department because the sound isn't ruining the actor's recording because the motor drive is not making noise. So that's one example of coming up with a prop. That solve a lot of different problems for several different departments.
0: I think another area where it's um, clear that you're doing some innovative work is in the space of expendables, where food, drink, cigarettes, whatever people might need to use. But rather than clearing licensing around it, you have created some brands that can be used without those concerns. Tell me more about how that works.
1: Well, we're in the world of monetizing everything, so even streaming services and commercial TV—they're getting commercial consideration for using certain products. If a uh, Budweiser is being used as the primary advertiser for a show, they don't wanna see any competitive brands on that show. So we create completely nondescript brands that don't exist anywhere. So we're not stepping on any other brands. So the networks or the films can do whatever type of money deals they want for advertising because we're not competing against a brand that doesn't actually exist. Or there are times where an actor or actress is using a product and is doing so irresponsibly. Somebody gets drunk. um, Somebody uses drugs. They get into an accident. People are hurt. You don't want a real existing brand to be associated with those types of negative connotations.
2: What's also incredible now is when you were looking at some of the products, how real they look. And it's the expectations. Watch a TV show from the 70s. And you'll see the products that they're using; they look like movie props. You know, sometimes like Archie Bunker would drink a can of beer that was just a yellow can that just said beer on it, and that was accepted. Now that wouldn't be accepted for anything but a laugh. So everything just has to look just like something you would you would really have.
0: Well, when we were walking around next door, you had full time graphic artists designing new labels and. Uh, whether specifically on commission or just more of your products, that's a a full-time, full-time effort as well. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. Once again, additional artisans that come together and they want something that looks like a recognizable brand, but isn't exactly like it. It has to look authentic. Like Scott was saying, we've all seen TV shows and films that have a product that is so generic and so awful. It actually takes me away from, my watching and enjoying the show. Uh, Granted, I'm probably not your typical viewing audience, but when I see something that stands out, and unfortunately with our craft, the only time sometimes we are noticed is when we do something that isn't very good or it's a mistake or something that looks bad. So we try to do our job to where everything fits. If you're doing something from the 50s, everything has to fit for the 50s. You can't have something in there that looks like it's from the 70s. Um, decades matter.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about how that's become more and more relevant. um, as people notice more and more of those small details in film and television. Well, we have in our film and television industry now, the super
1: fan, and it's kind of a takeoff from HD and the fact that nothing is background any longer. Everything can ultimately be blown up to see every glorious detail. So you used to, back in the old days, when they did things on film, something that was a hundred feet from camera, you could have a Roman movie to where somebody was walking through with a Pepsi can. They wouldn't know the difference because they <laughs> wouldn't see it. But now the superfan can see the police document that the background actor is walking down the hallway and they can read it and see that it doesn't say the actor's real name. The dates are wrong. It's not even the correct city in which they're in. So everything has to be technically accurate and correct.
2: And to take that a step further, now it's not just one person noticing it. Now, if a movie comes out and it takes place in Roman times and someone's wearing a a wristwatch, that person who notices it is going to put it up on some kind of bulletin board or it's going to go up on IMDb or like what happened with uh, Game of Thrones with the coffee cup. It ended up on every major news channel. So within a matter of moments, such a simple mistake that would have been overlooked and never noticed in a different era. Now, within within a 24-hour period, everyone on the planet has access to that information.
1: And some savvy producers are actually placing Easter eggs in different TV shows and feature films that give those super fans a little insight on what might be happening on next episode or a spin-off or just something that they can talk amongst their friends with.
2: I have to say, I do a lot of Easter eggs myself. <laughs> any any driver's license, unless it's been scripted, whenever it's just left up to me to do a driver's license or a serial number, it's always my son's birthday. On every show I do, it's always 10-11-96. Or, I'm sorry, 10-14-96. I always put that in as just numbers I use. And there's always things. I'll put my anniversary or my wife's birthday, and I always find that in whenever I've I've done I've done products where I've got my son's face in it and it, I would never do it to where it would where it would compromise what the prop was needed to be I'll never do something personal like that but if I have that opportunity I'd love putting in little Easter eggs like that
0: Greg you told me a story earlier about uh, the uh, early days of this when you were working on Doogie Hauser. yeah one of the first shows that was a property master on was Doogie Hauser.
1: And my first recollection of how technology was changing the way we do things is the early montage, the opening sequence of Doogie Hauser had a series of inserts of old newspaper articles of Boy Genius Delivers Baby, etc. And back in the old days, going to the eighties. Um, you would do the headline, a photograph of the actor and the body of the story itself would be just four scores and seven years ago, minutia that just ran on and on. Well, back in the old days, somebody had this new technology called a forehead VHS machine, and they were able to still image the opening sequence. Somebody with a magnifying glass went to their TV, their tube TV (laughs) and read that the body of the article didn't tie in with the headline of the article. So Mr. Bochco had us completely redo the entire title sequence. The writers wrote stories that went with every yes. single article and we had to redo the entire sequence. At that point, I realized this is the beginning of something that's going to create problems if you don't do your job correctly.
2: Just today, I wrote the producer's assistant because there's a, there's a scene where somebody is reading a divorce letter. And... I even asked the director, I go, are we ever going to see this letter? In the movie you're working on now. Yes. And the director goes, no, I'll never do an insert on it, but I know they're still going to be holding it. So I want it for two reasons. One, just what Greg said. And because I want the actor to be that much more into the prop. I want the actor to see something on the paper as opposed to just gibberish. Even if the actor's not reading it, it just allows this actor to feel like he has what he really has. So I want the letter, I'm asking for the producer to either let me write it or do they want to submit something so that it is a divorce letter.
1: Some of the crazy things that prop masters deal with and actors and actresses at times can be somewhat eccentric. And when you have a very serious method actor or actress, I once had an actress on a TV show that wanted to make sure that the briefcase that she was walking with down the hallway had the correct legal paperwork in it because that was supposed to be her job. <laughs> the briefcase never opens, it's not a story point, but we had to make her happy and put legal paperwork in the briefcase that she was only walking with.
2: And I, had, I worked on a show that the showrunner wanted every single drawer in the house to have underwear in it, socks in it. The drawers were never opened, but it had a, everything had a habit. So if he came onto the set and he pulled a drawer open, that the house was functional. Forget the fact that if he looked up in the air, there was no ceiling in the room. It was just a lighting grid. That wouldn't take him out of it. But every drawer, he would go into the kitchen, he wanted forks and knives in there.
1: So we simply smile and do the best we can and tell him that there's legal paperwork in that briefcase.
0: (laughs) Was there underwear in every drawer, Scott?
2: The set decorator, yeah. (laughs) The set decorator went and and did that. Had to go through the whole house.
0: I just bought some of it on eBay. Following up on the manufacturing side and with these issues of copyright and licensing, what are some of the challenges of even making props as far as the licensing and, and other legal issues are
2: involved?
1: Well, as we access um, artwork, um, fonts, we make sure that everything is duly and properly licensed to us as a company for commercial application. Um, our artisans and our employees all sign non disclosure agreements and they agree everything that they manufacture can then be sold and or rented to the studios in all perpetuity. The amount of paperwork and legal ease that goes into renting sometimes a simple police badge would boggle the mind.
2: Seriously boggle the mind. I get script, when, when a script comes out, the first thing I'll get before I even contact Greg about what I need, I will get pages and pages of legal notes. They've gone through the script. They'll give me their limitations. On Queen of the South, we actually got... A note from the attorney, which our line producer had to go against, that they said the only font that we are allowed to use in this show for any graphics, signage, anything, is Courier. Very basic font. That was it. Only one font for the entire show. And everybody just went crazy. And the producer had to call them up and said, There's, we, we can't do that. And they said, well, you could take, you know, on a computer now, you could take that font and you could bend it and stretch it and make it look different. <laughs> because for them it's easier to say no than to try to find a way to say yes.
0: Well, on that path to yes, I was also interested on the tour, Greg, about some of the devices you showed with blinking lights and such where they need a bomb that's gonna go off or some sort of computer screen that's gonna work. Talk to me about some of the innovations about creating what looks correct, even if maybe that's not accurate in some cases.
1: Well, sometimes we have to design a prop to help tell the story. And if it's not sold in dialogue to the actor, or actress, a bomb, for example, if you're seeing it count down and lights are blinking, most audience members know something bad is about to happen. But the reality with a lot of recording devices and other technology, it's a bunch of computer chips and a little black box. It really doesn't do anything. So, unless something is said specifically via dialogue, um, you don't really know what's going on. So, oftentimes you have to make design a prop. That will help tell that story along with the actor
0: and the dialogue. But tell me about lie detectors, how they've changed over the years.
1: Well, everyone thinks about a lie detector as being that super archaic rolling tape paper with the little ink wand that goes back and forth. And when you tell a lie, it starts spazzing out and goes crazy. Well, for about the last 15 years, all lie detector tests have been on laptops. But people are so tuned into the fact that that can't be a lie detector test because they don't have the little needles with the ink and the piece of paper. So we've taken old-fashioned lie detector tests to make them look modern just so they can see the little ink going on the piece of paper because people are so used to seeing that.
2: And taking that point again, what you were talking about with the red lights, I'm always going back and forth with a producer. We'll sit at a, at a production meeting and we'll talk about where to hide the bomb because we don't want our hero to find that the bomb you know, needs to be here The art department needs to just rig it just right. And then it's all, it's all finalized with props, to make sure there's a blinking red light on it. Like, well, that kind of defeats the whole point of hiding it, doesn't it? <laughs> like if you were trying to hide a bomb and, and when you put a countdown clock on it, it lets your hero know how much time they have at what point do they want to stop doing it and run out of the room? If you don't put the countdown clock on it and you don't put the blinking light on it, you won't be able to find the bomb and you won't know when to escape because you won't. none of that ties in, but it ha- helps tell the story.
1: It's a good thing for all of you that we use our powers for good and not for evil because we know all the ways in which to get away with it. We just don't use it.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk more about how props does touch so many departments. The expectations both of the property department to meet the expectations of other departments and how ISS is a partner in trying to solve those problems.
2: The prop department becomes the the, the final period in every sentence. The minute any department can't figure out what it is, most notably costume, art department, set decorating, the minute they can't do it, it always falls in our lap. And that's if, if there's one time where it's it's kind of hard to put your finger on just what prop does it is for that reason when, you know what the costume designer does they work strictly with costume they really don't go off that lane at all the set decorator is decorating the sets but props we've done everything from decorate sets to provide costumes to provide weapons to provide glasses i mean it's just everything
1: well for an example you've got uh, i'll just use woody harrelson as an example he's a renowned raw vegan actor. He's in a film where he's using a machine gun. So he wants to eat a piece of food in the scene. You've got to make sure that it's correct for his dietary needs. You've got to make sure that the gun's going to work properly. You've got to train him how to make it look like he's a badass and is doing exactly the right thing. When up until a half hour ago, he had never seen this weapon. He had never shot that weapon. He had never thought about how to use it and do it. If we do our job incorrectly, his performance is directly impacted on what ends up on camera. If the food is wrong, he can get an upset stomach. He could get pissed off at us. He could walk off the set.
2: Or he could just go, it tastes terrible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it is fairly impactful. We work with people that you meet the morning of. They're supposed to be a surgeon. They're going to be in a scene to where they're doing surgery. You're telling them. You're showing them how to perform open heart surgery. When we don't know how to do it, we employ the aid and assistance of different technical advisors. But at the end of the day, the director, the actor, the producer comes to us and say, can he do, should he do, what would happen if this happens? So we have to be kind of a Jack or Jill of all trades. And when we don't know something, we have to learn it very quickly.
2: I've always said when I go for interviews, because a lot of times I'll interview for shows when it's television, even features that I might not be the proper demographic for. I worked for many seasons on a show called Switched at Birth, which dealt primarily with high school girls. And as goofy as it sounds, I would always tell the producers that I have to be an actor in the show, and that when I'm on that show, I do have to be a 16-year-old girl. When I prop it, I have to get backpacks that a 16-year-old girl would get, not that a middle-aged man would get, I have to come in from an angle of the character that I'm portraying. And when I'm playing the parents, then I have to be the parents and everything has to be correct. You you really have to get into the heads of the actors that, that you're propping for.
1: Part of the reason I was hired as the prop master on Doogie Howser MD, is I was a 24 or 25 year old prop master at that time, most property masters were 50, 60, 70 year old curmudgeons that were, kind of cranky. I was a young guy because it was primarily a young cast and they wanted
0: somebody that would connect with the kids on their level. I want to talk more about weapons. You mentioned uh, in the story about Woody Harrelson, him having a weapon and having to fire it. Now, even as we were walking around today, you're manufacturing lots of rubber weapons. um, So that's a big part of it. But you also have a full armory here on location.
1: Yeah, the weapons are always something that uh, have a tendency of potentially freaking people out because they are real weapons. We actually had an ATF audit years ago, and some of the agents came through not even knowing that we use real weapons that are modified to fire blank ammunition. So it's a real gun that could potentially really harm somebody if it's used improperly. And some people in our generally liberal more left hollywood are kind of anti-gun but they're supposed to be a badass in this film so you have to get them warm and fuzzy with the gun you have to show them how to use it Um, depending on what city state you film in there are very specific guidelines and what you can and can't have certain types of weapons nfa weapons um, machine guns destructive devices The individual has to be specifically licensed to be able to own, possess, transport these weapons. Uh, It's taken very seriously. Uh, You can go to jail for a very long time if you don't do it legally.
0: Well, tell me more about what's under your roof. I mean, all that expertise on weapons, both what's allowed in state to state, how it has to be done, the manufacturing shops. That was it's a huge and very impressive operation.
1: The gun thing is a real beast because we're primarily located in California. As we know, California gun laws are rather stringent. ATF has never carved out the correct category for uh, a movie armor. We're basically treated as uh, SOT, FFL holders. A standard transaction for a gun dealer would be they acquire a gun, they sell a gun, their transaction's over. We acquire guns, we rent them, they come and they go, sometimes hundreds of times in a given year. So we're a very unique business model that ATF isn't really set up to handle. So we do our very best to make sure that we keep tabs on every single gun that we have. Uh, It is very complicated. We have guns from the 17th century on up to the 21st century, uh, then even have to do futuristic guns. So it's never ending. We're basically making a weapon fire a blank, never designed to do so. So we're trying to make a weapon do something that was never intended to do and make it look cool, make the actors and actress look cool, make sure everything works, and at the end of the day, do it all safely and
0: legally. Sometimes that's a very difficult thing to accomplish. Well, you had some unique weapons you showed me on the tour. For example, you had a Gatlin gun. That is a working, firing Gatlin gun. Uh, You had the weapons from Oblivion, the Tom Cruise futuristic movie, but that actually worked as weapons. What are some of your favorites or the ones that, that come to mind, either whether you guys were directly involved in the development or the things that you've had to keep working order but actually don't exist in this time anymore?
1: Futuristic guns are always fun because you're basically taking old technology and trying to make it look like something that didn't previously exist make it look cool, make it still function. Um, those are always a challenge. When you're putting uh, coverings over existing weapons, you have to do so with the design in mind where shells extract, the belt goes in here, the actor has to hold it, there's stunts involved, this part gets hot and could ultimately melt the material that you're using to manufacture. So there's a million considerations and sometimes you succeed and sometimes you fail, but. It, it's complicated, it's
0: fun, and it's challenging. When a show is weapons heavy, and they're gonna use weapons all the time, definitely police shows, do those companies rent then long-term for the course of a season, or are there cases where it makes sense for them to actually purchase and control their own weapons for, because they're using them so often?
1: We rent long term all the time. The guns can come back and forth. We can service them. We can make sure they can operate safely. Generally speaking, productions choose not to buy the guns because it's a complicated legal nexus for a production company to own a gun that is somewhat controlled. There's also, I'm sure, a lawyer whispering in somebody's ear about the potential liability. They would rather the liability be on me as a company renting to them versus one individual for Sony, for example. Uh, signing up and being responsible for that gun when 12 other people might be handling it and holding it. Uh, it can get very complicated.
2: Also, any weapon that I would want to buy is not going to do what the weapons that Greg could rent me do. They're not going to fire blanks. If you bought actual weapons to actually have that, it's
0: not appropriate for what you're doing on set anyway.
2: Correct. And even if I had a place that could blank the guns for me or if I used revolvers that didn't need blanking, I don't want that responsibility. I know the way the sets work. It's not worth the paperwork for me. It's just, there's nothing about it that is advantageous as opposed to to renting it. I don't have to worry about the maintenance. I've had guns here and if something breaks or there's a problem, I bring it in and another one comes over the counter.
1: When you have a semi-automatic handgun, it's relatively simple, it's a $750 gun, but it has to be modified in 15 different ways that most people aren't aware of to fire a blank cartridge. And then on top of that, if you put the wrong blank cartridge in, it could potentially become a hand grenade because the pressure's too great and it blows up. But if you don't have one that's powerful enough, it will jam and not work and they have to yell cut and the actor gets pissed off and the effects don't work. So it's way more complicated than most people
2: know. And it goes beyond a peace of mind. When we were doing Queen of the South, I was either in Dallas or New Orleans. So I was up to 3000 miles away with nothing but ISS weapons. And for whatever problems I had on that show, good and bad, weapons were never one of them.
1: Uh, It's a badge of honor to have uh, a gun show, a cop show. Years ago, I worked on uh, a season of a thing called, I think, Man and Machine, and we had gunfire through the whole show. And the entire show, we never had one gun that malfunctioned. That's pretty rare because they are mechanical devices and like with any mechanical device, they can fail for a multitude of reasons. Also to include human error or actors or somebody just not doing the right thing.
2: It's also the only prop I ever bring on set that I've had actors afraid to even look at them. There's there's such a, a bad press or mystique or whatever you want to attribute to them. There are actors who just feel they're somehow selling out their soul by just holding the gun. So just being able to get the actor to feel comfortable and get them to that point where their character has to fire a gun is a big achievement in and of itself. And when I put that gun in their hand, if that gun betrays me in any way, that actor will never pick up another gun or certainly not pick up another gun for me. Well,
0: that leads me to ask Greg, besides the rental of the weapons, you also do some weapons training with actors.
1: Yeah, in addition to doing the Hollywood stuff, as they say, uh, we're law enforcement dealers. So we sell weapon systems and accessories to law enforcement agencies all over the United States. And we're also a Department of Defense contractors, So we work directly with the military in training and actually supplying them with some gear. That accomplishes a few things. One, we're not so uh, needy on just movie business But it also gets us tied in and have relationships with people that are doing the real jobs every day uh, in the military and the police that we're trying to recreate on a regular basis. So when you're talking to a real operator that's really been shot at, um, it's a very different learning experience than dealing with somebody that did a bunch of video games and thinks he looks cool doing something. Uh, One of my old tech advisors, Scotty Reitz, we'd be all impressed with hitting the target from 50 feet, he said, shooting's not shooting until you're being shot back at. And that's very true. They're in the business of being really shot at with real bullets. It's a very different thing with what we do, but we've got to make it look just as authentic.
0: On the authentic front, I want to go back to the manufacturing. What's the largest prop, if you will, that you've ever had to build here on location?
1: Probably, uh, uh, a Bradley M1 tank, I believe is what it was. We built the whole tank that was exterior and more importantly, interior. If you can think how difficult it is to exist on the interior of a Bradley tank, now think about having a film crew inside of one and filming it. So we were able to split this tank completely in half and photograph from the outside of the tank as though you were on the inside of the tank. This was complete with a breach that would accept a shell. Everything appeared as though it was a real tank and we fabricated the whole thing from scratch.
0: And on the other end, you also showed me some props where it looks like a real item, but in fact, you've redone the prop to reflect the actors that are going to be in the movie rather than the actual item itself. For example, a album cover, Um, you showed me the straight out of Compton album, but for the movie, they needed to have these people on the album cover. So how are things like that come about on the, on, the, on the complete other end as far as scale goes?
1: Well, when you're doing a piece about actual historical events that have taken place, but you're having to insert all new actors that are now playing those characters, uh, you've got to do photo shoots and then recreate the photo albums, sometimes posters, um, sometimes even videos, movies um, that are with all the talent. So you've got to completely recreate authentically like the NWA album cover with all the actors that were cast for it. And it looks just like the real one because they did such a good job of casting. They really look like the people that were in NWA.
0: Other favorite props from over the years, Greg, that you have here in the building?
1: I really need to come up with a better answer because I'm constantly asked this question but it's like I have three sons. Which one is my favorite? <laughs> so I actually said
2: the tall one. Right?
1: <laughs> I actually do have a favorite, but I'm not going to say. Um, one of the things I do like that somebody gave me as a gift, and it's one of my top ten films, Apocalypse Now, and it's a hand-carved AK-47 oh. because they weren't able to get weapons into the filming location for government restrictions, as well as a few typhoons. So when you see the movie, there are people running around the jungle with the scene with Marlon Brando, and you think they have real AK-47s, but they're actually hand-carved from some of the indigenous people, and uh, that's sitting right across from you now, and that's one of the props I have that's kind of cool.
0: We've talked a lot about the sort of the props that come together. Let's talk more about the relationship with the prop masters and the shows. Yes, ideally, you have a script months in advance. You get the problems. You solve them together. But I know that's not always the case, how things work on set.
1: Yeah, a script months in advance. Yeah, I've never
2: heard that one. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. Um,
1: When I was on NYPD Blue, David Milch was writing a scene on bar napkins in the rain in the backs of a taxi cab, and the ADs went out and they got uh, copies of those to give to the actors. So yeah, sometimes you don't get things, but a few moments in
2: advance. I'm going to Morocco for three months, and we don't have a lot of the scripts yet. And we have to figure out what we might need in any given scenario, especially in a country where I'm not going to have a prop house and certain things are prohibited, prohibited to be shipped in.
1: It's kind of like a camping trip. You plan for good weather, bad weather and horrible weather. You try to plan for a couple of different eventualities and you try to have a few options in your back pocket. But sometimes when the location has constraints or the budget is small You really have to just make it as tight as you can.
2: Also, when I rent here, I don't rent just the things that are scripted. A lot of times, I'll use Queen of the South only because it's the most recent. I put together, it, it was a show about Mexican drug cartels, so I put a drug cartel kit together. I rented a lot of weapons from here just that I thought we would need. I would rent drug paraphernalia, just a whole bunch of stuff that we could need. Some of the stuff never came out of the box that I rented it from a lot of stuff We used it over and over again and that's having to rent things for scripts again That might not be coming out for weeks or months. So I just try to create props for that environment
1: a big part of what we do as property masters and even ISS as a company is you try to read between the lines some people would think that we're upselling it, but when you know that they're going to do a police scene. There's going to be a press environment. You know some of the other accoutrements that should go with that. And if it's a prop master that doesn't maybe have the same amount of experience, uh, you may make suggestions as to what they have. And then, as Scott alluded to, as a prop master, you read the script. You see it's a crime scene. You think of all the other things that they might ask for when an AD wants some sort of interesting background or the DP wants to start an extreme close-up on something then pan to what's going on. You have to understand the players and what they're going to possibly ask for and then anticipate what they may throw at you.
0: Well, and then it sounds like when someone has rented a package, it's a continuing relationship. So as things change or there are challenges on set, you do your best to accommodate what they may need even last minute.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, most people have my cell number. (laughs) Uh, My son lived next door to the companies for a couple of years. He has a record on a Saturday of opening up 10 times to get people things that they didn't anticipate or it became an emergency or I opened up ISS at three o'clock one morning to get another thousand rounds of ammunition because the scene they didn't think they were gonna shoot many guns turned into a war scene, and they were shooting ammo, and they ran out. Guns aren't very interesting when you don't have blank ammunition.
0: The other thing that might not be interesting to everyone, but I was fascinated from the AD perspective, is how you track all of these props going in and out.
1: Yeah, ISS has a rather complicated, some accountants love us, some accountants hate us, but it's a completely proprietary operating software system that's numerical based. Uh, we can't use barcodes and a lot of things that are available to commercially available rental packages because all of our stuff at the end of the day ends up on camera. So you can't take the chance of a barcode that says ISS, as much as I would like the advertising, <laughs> to end up on camera because the prop master, the, the movie, the show, we all kind of look like buffoons when that happened.
2: And we'd end up just be peeling, we'd be peeling off. Your barcode stickers, all <laughs> and you get it back without the stickers on it. But
1: even with the numerical system, it's not infallible. One time I can remember back in the old days uh, a film with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men. And the opening sequence was a group of military people doing their drill. And the military people stopped on the drill with their bayonet, and it was an extreme close up of the Marine with this gun and the bayonet and on the bayonet I could see on the 70-foot screen (laughs) ISS.015974 and I realized at that moment nobody else caught that but I caught it and that was a great form of advertisement or at
0: least a a funny story. So you're tracking everything by a number but you're also taking pictures of every single item before it goes out the door.
1: Yeah, once again, I'm dating myself, but back in the old days, we would use a Polaroid camera and sometimes even old-fashioned notes for continuity uh, and where things were, things were placed, etc. When we send props out in a certain condition, they'll come back bloodied, muddied, destroyed, damaged, half of what was there. And the prop master will say, uh, it never came off the truck. That's the way I got it. <laughs> So
0: now,
1: we've pretty much heard every story before because some of the stuff is becoming so expensive and the condition in in which you keep it matters. Um, We take a photograph of every single prop before it goes out. So when it comes back, um, we can show the prop master or the production company exactly now what it looks like and why it's not what was sent and why you now need to pay to have it repainted. Sometimes it has to be completely
0: replaced. Well, and we're not just talking about a toolkit. We're talking about every tool in a kit or a police vest has every single handcuff or reload or fake weapon, whatever it is, every single item has to be tracked.
1: Yeah. One standard forensic kit could have 500 pieces in it. Everything from Q-tips to uh, powders and little brushes and uh, black lights and all the little details that make it look great. But if one or two of those components is missing, then the next person that rents it doesn't have what they need for the scene. So the continuity of that stuff matters uh, to a very, very high degree.
2: We were shooting at a warehouse once and we were doing a SWAT scene with probably 14 or 15 guys in SWAT uniforms. And it was an old abandoned warehouse. We were in Dallas and I told our UPM that at night, it was a Friday night, I go, when we wrap, I'm gonna need an extra two hours because I have a lot of stuff to count in. And she was like, well, can't you just look at it all on Monday during the day, I go, well, yeah, but then the, 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 the trail has grown cold. I go, when this guy comes to me and he gives me his gun, I go, there's so many little things. I go, if a belt keeper is missing, you know, there's a couple dollars. If he's left his gun, you know, a lot of times we've had people come by and they go, Oh, you know what? I it Replica weapons. And I go, I, I leave my replica weapon up against a wall someplace and I have to go back in that warehouse now before lights go off to reclaim all of that. So it is, it's, and it's also, you know, because I feel a sense of family in the way I said it's, this is my home office, I wanna get everything back. I don't wanna just say, nah, screw it, they'll just write an L and D. It's not coming out of my pocket either way, but I just don't feel responsible to have to send an order back with pieces missing.
1: There's a liability element of that as well that is a real concern to both individual prop masters and studios and their lawyers. If a replica gun, even a rubber gun is lost or a badge and that badge and that gun in combination gains access to somebody's apartment and then bad illegal things take place from that point forward. Or if a child is playing with a uh, replica weapon that looks so real that when the police officers roll up on that person, their first thought is this kid has a real gun and we're going to shoot them because we fear for our safety. All those things in have to be considered as something that, if it goes horribly wrong, could lend itself to somebody
0: dying or being hurt very badly. Well, it's clearly a huge operation, and I think not everyone appreciates all the moving pieces. And having prop masters, a shop that they can work with, you can see how it all comes together. But let's talk about the future. What are your plans, Greg, for ISS going forward?
1: I want to be a scratch golfer, and I want my kids to run it all. (laughs) Uh, ISS is unique in the sense that I'm second generation within the company. My sons are third generation. So they're starting the transition into taking it over. Um, It's a much larger beast than when I took it over. So the transition will take a little bit more time. But my sons are very uh, adventurous and aggressive. And my oldest son, Hayden, would very much like to start creating his own content. Who knows, ISS streaming channel may be available to you soon and we'll start creating some of our own content. Many of the things that are cost prohibitive for other people to use in a show to get all that production value, we have sitting on ourselves. We have the expertise and the people that can do it on a daily basis. So if you have a good script idea, bring it to me and we may
0: make our first film or TV show with you. Interesting. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. So separate from just ISS, where do both of you see props evolving in the future? Well, ISS is owned
1: by a local 44 property master, myself, Greg Bilson, Jr. I have 34 years in the business. I have hundred thousand hours and it's a shame to me that so many people, including some of the producers that hire us, don't know what a quality property master brings to the table. I would love to educate everybody on what an amazing craft the property master position is. I would love to be on a stage thanking my mom and dad for having me on the Globes, the Emmys or the Oscars someday. Um, I think we're an integral part of the collaboration of the art department that has largely been ignored, but that is partially our own fault. We're going to rebrand ourselves and reeducate people as to what we do. We have formed the Property Masters Guild. It is brand new. We're going to have our first award show in 2021. So if nobody acknowledges us, we're going to get together and we're going to have a really good party. And we're going to acknowledge each other and the great jobs that he and she have done on different TV shows, commercial and feature films. And I would love to say that someday the legacy is that we're now recognized, and I feel we should be recognized. Scott, you're doing it every day. What do you think?
2: I totally agree. It's, we were, when you were taking the tour, we were looking at the Avengers poster, and I pointed out that that whole poster is selling props. There's Thor's hammer. There's gadgets all over the place. There's Captain America's shield. The whole poster was about props. Yet, Prop Master's name, not on the poster. Prop Master would not win that film would win, if that film wins any kind of award, a sci-fi award, not just an Oscar or an Emmy, the big ones, but there's a whole slew of, of more specified awards, all being supported and created by props. And it's not like the old days where, back in the 50s or 60s, where you would go to the Warner Brothers prop house and just take things off the shelf just to kind of make it. I see myself now as the production designer of the prop department. Everything I do, even on the most, basic, basic of television shows. The props are designed and created. It's not just going to Target and buying things off the shelf. And even when I go to Target and buy things off the shelf, it's with a specific character in mind. There's nothing random about what we do. We put easily as much emphasis into our creation as any director of photography, any costume designer. And there are plenty of costume designers who don't actually make the costumes. They're going to various stores and using their creative eye and making a purchase and bringing them to the set. Very rarely have I done a show where everything is off the shelf. There's all these things you hear, things going back and forth. A lot of times producers are like, do we even need a prop master? Why don't we just get a PA to do it? And in a way, it's a very left-handed compliment because what we do comes across as so easy. And it's it's such a well-oiled machine that they think a PA could just step ahead and do it. And it's so beyond that. And I don't really blame people for that because like Greg said, people need to be educated where they only notice what we do when our job goes wrong. Everybody just assumes that Thor's hammer, it's just Thor's hammer, it's the shield. No one really thinks that that was created out of the mud of the earth, that that did not exist until someone had the vision and the prop master made that vision real. We are the Aladdin's lamp.
1: We're the MacGyvers of the film set, damn it. We need to be recognized.
0: Well, I think your plans for uh, award ceremony are exciting. Hope you'll come back and talk to us here at Below the Line as that comes together. We'd love to see who you guys nominate in those first years and talk more about that. Greg, if listeners want to learn more about ISS, where should they go?
1: Well, first of all, you know I'm passionate about the craft. So I am infinitely reachable. They can reach me through our website, uh, issprops.com. They can reach me directly if somebody wants to get into this industry. Uh, We need more passionate people that are really into this. This isn't just about a paycheck. This is a job that you love doing. Um, There are hard days. There are tragic days. There are long days. But I would not do anything more or differently than what we do on a daily basis.
2: I couldn't agree more. And if people are getting into this job thinking about the paycheck, it took me many years of making $50 a day working in the rain, working in the snow, solely my only payment was the passion of seeing my work on a movie screen or on the television screen or someone saying, hey, Scott, I saw your name on the credits last night. It took a long time until I was making the kind of living that I could live a comfortable life and feel proud of the living I'm making. But I'm equally as proud of the job I'm doing now as when I was doing low budget, non-union guerrilla films under bridges in New York City.
1: Now Scott lights cigars with $100 bills. <laughs>
2: and I don't even smoke the
1: cigars. <laughs> they're, they're not real cigars and they're not real $100 bills, but he still does it.
2: <laughs> well, Greg,
0: I have to say uh, to the credit of ISS, even touring your facility today, all of the folks that I met, clearly that passion is part of what they bring to the job here. And so very impressed. Thank you so much for your time today, guys. It's been a lot of Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, please share your feedback. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, not biz. That's B-I-Z. If you're an iTunes user, please rate us. It really helps us reach new listeners. And if you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. I took a lot of photos today, and I'm excited to share them with you. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the line. Thanks to Curtis Fye for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Listeners, thanks again for joining us. This concludes our series about the property department, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We're going to take a short break, but new episodes will be available soon.